First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate Cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for a bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at North Kentucky University. My guest today is Danielle McDonald, a criminal justice professor at Northern Kentucky University. Now, I've known Danielle for geez, many years now, I think around a decade or so, and I, I can't believe it's taken me this long to have her on the show to talk about law enforcement and, and the justice system in the United States, given her expertise in this area. She's the author of a whole bunch of academic articles, as well as several books, the latest of which is Race, Gender, and Criminal Justice, Examining Barriers to Justice. Danielle, welcome to the show. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me. You know, I'd like to start by asking you about uh, uh, racial profiling. You know, I guess, first off, can you explain what it is, you know, how it's commonly defined, and secondly, how common it is? Yeah, of course. Um, In order to understand racial profiling, you have to step back and look at profiling itself. Um, Profiling is a law enforcement tactic that's totally fine. Um, It's when an officer uses his or her experiences and what is occurring within their surroundings to determine if there might be a crime taking place. So, for example, if I am a police officer and I'm driving down the road at 2 in the morning on Saturday night and I see someone swerving on the road, I'm going to make the assumption that they're drunk or high or something like that. Um, So that's profiling. Um, Profiling is fine, but it becomes a problem and turns into racial profiling when you add race or ethnicity um, as as a criteria for why you're suspecting somebody of a crime. That's when it becomes problematic. Um, and in the Obama administration, under Attorney General uh, Holder, the federal policy was expanded to include gender and gender identity and sexual orientation, nationality and religion, along with race and ethnicity. Um, at the federal level, FBI agents are not allowed to engage in racial profiling, but this is used as a guidance at the state and local level. So currently we have 30 states that actually have laws specifically against it, but they vary uh, widely from one state to the next. So, for example, we only have 16 states that actually have criminal penalties for violating racial profiling laws. Um, And today we see it primarily occurring with um, traffic stops. So it used to be in the 80s and 90s, um, there was the issue where we were seeing uh, non-whites, particularly African-Americans, being pulled over at very high rates and then um, stopped and, and you know, they're primarily looking for drugs. Um, we started keeping data on that, and that's kind of gotten under control. But now the issue with traffic stops is what happens to you once you're pulled over. And what we find is that um, blacks are three times more likely than whites and two times more likely than Hispanics to actually have their cars searched once they're pulled over. Um, even though the majority of time, around 90%, nothing is actually found during the stop. And the other place where we see it really taking place is with the stop and frisk policies. So, for example, with the uh, NYPD, they implemented a policy of stop and frisk in order to try and reduce drugs and guns on the streets, um, where they're going to stop people who they think are suspicious of a crime, and then once they stop that person, if they, you know, their suspicion levels tend or start to increase, then they can actually pat them down and do a surface pat. Um, between 2002 and 2011, 3.8 million people were stopped um, in New York City um, under this policy, with um, 
90% of those who were stopped were black or Latino, but only but 88% of the time, those who were stopped had not committed any sort of crime. Wow. Now, now people who uh, are, are for this sort of thing are sort of proponents of racial profiling. They certainly don't say, well, I, I'm, 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 I'm for this because I'm racist and I, you know, <laughs> but, but they say, right, that it's an effective uh, crime prevention or crime fighting tactic. It, is your sense that, that this really isn't the case then? Yeah, it's, it's simply not true. Um, whites are actually more likely to commit crimes, but they're more like, less likely to get into trouble for it. So, for instance, there was a study done in Greensboro, North Carolina in 2010, and they were looking at the differences in um, traffic stops and who, who was being pulled over. And they found that blacks were pulled over at a significantly higher rate and searched twice as often as whites. Um, and police were less likely to use their discretion when they were pulling over black drivers. So, for instance, if you see somebody not stopping completely at a stop sign, you technically can pull them over. But oftentimes the officer will use their discretion and not do that. Um, but they were doing pulling blacks over. Um, the police officer stated it was because they believed that was who was committing the majority of the crimes. But when the data was actually examined, when they looked specifically at the searches, what they found was that whites were significantly more likely to have weapons or illegal drugs on them in comparison to blacks when they were being pulled over. Wow. Now, does this differ in terms of the race of the police officer? You know, it, there's not a lot of data that I'm aware of that examines it by the race of the police officer. Um, but my sense would be no, that there wouldn't be uh, much of a difference in regards to that, that this is the policy that's put in front of you and this is how people are implementing it. Right. Now, an another topic that you talk about in your book uh, is something I'm not all that familiar with, the militarization of law enforcement. It's, it's, it sounds kind of fascinating to me. And I was wondering what that means exactly and how long it's been going on. Yeah, militarization of law enforcement has been going on since the 1990 with the Department of Defense's 1033 program. Um, this was at the height of the war on drugs, and so the idea was that they would take excess military equipment and they would give it to state and local law enforcement. They could apply for it as long as they could illustrate that they were going to use it in the fight against the war on drugs. Um, and then later on, it was expanded to the war on terror as well after 9-11, and then there was even more excess military equipment with the wars that were occurring at that time. Um, and, and, and so it's actually the uh, same. So is, is this this is something then that uh, do we see mostly in like major urban areas, that sort of thing, or is it pretty much everywhere? It really is happening everywhere. Um, there are 17,000 state and federal law enforcement agencies that have received $4.3 billion in excess property since this program started. And that's in all 50 states. So the equipment is everywhere um, at this point in time. Um, but it is being used differently in different places. So one of the ways that we're seeing it being used is with SWAT, which is Special Weapons and Tactics. Um, and SWAT was intended for barricade situations, hostage situations, active shooters, and those sorts of things where you need the police to have, you know, an extra layer of protection coming in. Um, but today, with the access to this military equipment, what we find is that 80% of small towns and 90% of large cities now have, have a SWAT team in place. Um, and we don't keep records on how SWAT is being utilized. And so the ACLU a few years ago did a record, public records request where they asked police departments to, to give them information on how they were utilizing SWAT. And what they found was that it had been ex expanded uh, 
to include search warrants, and primarily those search warrants were being used for drugs. Um, and so, you know, that's not the, the, the original intended use of it. And there is a racial disparity in regards to what's going on there, where they found that it was only being used um, 7% of the time as it was intended for those, you know, barricade and active shooter type situations. And when it was used as it was intended, the offender was typically white. But when it was used for a search warrant for drugs, 61% of the suspects were black or Latino. So it really depends upon how the SWAT is being deployed. If it's being deployed, um, you know, it could be being deployed anywhere, you know, with active shooter situations the way that they are today. But in regards to the war on drugs, it's very clearly being targeted within specific communities. Right. Now, I think a lot of people would say, well, heck, if the if police can use tanks and guns and it'll make us safer, then, then that's great. I mean, is there any sense that this is making you know, is this a useful tool or is it being overused or, or, or what's your sense of that? It's what's a useful tool and the intended usage of it. So if you have an active shooter situation, you would definitely want that. So for instance, in, in Las Vegas over the summer, you would need SWAT in that type of situation. It would definitely be justified. Um, but when we're bringing it in, you know, for instance, in Ferguson, we saw uh, SWAT being used uh, with the uh, protests that occurred after the death of Michael Brown, who was uh, shot and killed by the police officer. The reaction to that was to bring in SWAT. And what it actually does is it creates a situation of us versus them, where you have the police coming in, literally dressed like military, using military equipment, um, you know, coming in to invade the community that they're actually there to protect and serve. And so it creates an us versus them situation where the community is terrified of the police and clearly the police are terrified of the community or they wouldn't be coming in in this manner. And it, it sets up a situation where, you know, the community is no longer willing to work with the police. And the reality of it is, is that if the community is not willing to work with the police, the police can't do their job. The police are reliant on the community to call them for help and let them know when a crime is occurring or to let them know that there are problems occurring within their neighborhood. Um, the police also need the community in order to serve as witnesses in, in cases um, and to help them gather evidence and that sort of thing. You know, if you have a shooting occur and the police come in and you have a situation where there's bad relations with, between the police and the community and there were 50 people that witnessed it, that nobody's willing to speak about it. That's when it becomes incredibly problematic for the police to to be able to do their job. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. Uh, you know, I, I'd like to move from policing to the legal system, the things that happen after uh, an arrest is made. Now, the Sixth Amendment to the Constitution, of course, guarantees the right to counsel, among other things. But this doesn't necessarily mean a whole lot unless that council has, you know, the proficiency, the, the resources to provide uh, a truly effective defense. So how good of a job do we do in the United States at providing effective counsel for the indigent? And that's a really important question because I don't think most people are aware that 80% of criminal defendants actually use the indigent defense system. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a tremendous amount. And there's only 20% of us are actually lucky enough to be able to afford a private attorney. Um, so public defenders are incredibly overburdened. Um, and we don't provide much financial in the way of resources for them. So, for instance, we spend about nationwide, we spend $3.5 less 
on public defenders than we do prosecutors. And of course, that's who they're going to be going up against in the courtroom. Um, and it's also important to keep in mind that, you know, at the time of Gideon, uh, there were 217,000 people incarcerated. Gideon was the Supreme Court case that opened up indigent defense. Um, and there were only 217,000 people incarcerated at that time. But now with the war on drugs and the things that are occurring today, we have you know about 2.3 million people incarcerated. Um, it's estimated that we would need to hire about 6,900 more public defenders in order just to deal with the caseload. And then there's also the issue of pay. Um, we don't do a very good job of paying um, public defenders to do the job. We also don't provide them with money to go and investigate the cases, et cetera. So, you know, at the state level, the average pay for a public defender is $65 an hour. Um, and in some states, it goes down to as low as 40 And it's because they haven't raised their wages since the 1990s. But if you compare that to the federal system where they, they pay private attorneys to come in and and uh, work with uh, the indigent clients, the, pri- the federal system pays the private attorneys $125 an hour. So there's a significant difference between what's occurring at the federal level and, and the state level. Yeah, and, you know, my sense of things, too, is that a lot of people coming out of law school, especially with uh, a fair amount of debt, as oftentimes is the case, it's, it's not exactly an attractive career path for a lot of people for those reasons. And so it seems like oftentimes the people from the, the best law schools are, are, are best and are brightest just don't even look in that direction because of the, the stigma that, that's, put, that's put on it. Oh, I'm sure that's that's certainly true. Um, you know, and, and on the other hand, a lot of these public defenders are people who have just come out of school and don't have, you know, much trial experience and things like that as well. And they are trying to pay off their debt. So kind of the other side of the coin of this is I you know, have all this student loan debt, so I'm going to take on as many of these cases as I possibly can just to, to get some experience so I can move on to somewhere else. And again, it gets back to that issue of being overburdened. Can you really handle the caseload that you're taking on? Right, right, absolutely. Now, what do we know about sentencing disparities between white populations and minority populations? Are, are there some fairly significant differences there? Oh, there, there definitely are. I think um, in order to really understand what's going on with that, you have to look at the war on drugs and how that's directly impacted the non-white population moving through the criminal justice system. Um, people will often point to the prison system and say, well, we have you know, two-thirds and those who are incarcerated are black and Hispanic, so obviously that's who's committing crime. But there's a lot more to it than that. And so if you look back at the, uh, the 1986 Anti-Drug Abuse Act, which was passed in the middle of the crack cocaine epidemic, that's what really started the war on drugs as we know it today. Um, the, the idea or the basis of this was deterrence, right? If we punish people really, really harshly, then they're not going to want to do that. So if we make drug sentencing really, really tough, then people aren't going to want to participate in drug use, right? So they came up with the idea of mandatory minimums where legislators would put forth specific sentences and say, you know, if this person's convicted of this crime, they have to serve this sentence. So for instance, if you were caught with five grams of crack cocaine, it would trigger a five-year mandatory minimum sentence. And even if you were a nonviolent, low-level offender, you had to serve that full sentence. But you had to have 500 grams of powder cocaine to trigger the same exact sentence. It was referred to as the 100 to 1 ratio, where we actually believed powder cocaine, or I'm sorry, crack cocaine was 100 times more dangerous than powder cocaine. And so the sentences needed to reflect that. Um, But the reality of it is, is that five grams of crack cocaine for somebody who has a crack cocaine addiction is personal usage, where I think it'd be pretty hard to argue that 500 grams of powder cocaine would be personal usage, you know, um, that would 
be impressive if it was, perhaps. Um, so, you know, you have that going on. And then the other the other issue is that you want to make these sentences for, you know, drug offenders really long and harsh so that they're not going to want to engage in that. But the reality of it is, is you're talking about people who are addicted to drugs, and so they're not making rational decisions. And then at the same time, a lot of the media coverage um, surrounding crack cocaine focused on inner city communities and said, this is where it's happening. And, you know, we had suburban mothers, you know, saying, hey, we have to do something because my kid's going to be smoking crack cocaine behind the mall if, if, we, if we don't, because that's the way the media portrayed it. It was coming to you next if you didn't stop it. And so it really changed the focus of the war on drugs and how we fought it. Um, prior to this, we were focusing on trafficking and drugs coming into the United States and those people who were at the, the top of the food chain and really making money off of it. But with the, the war on drugs after the Anti-Drug Abuse Act, we really started focusing on those people who were selling really small amounts of drugs on the streets. And we started bringing in undercover vans and you could sit on the corner and, you know, take some pictures and within 10 to 15 minutes have a, a felony case against somebody. Um, and so what ended up happening was this brought a lot of non-white and or poor um, low-level offenders into the criminal justice system um, because not only, you know, you have the law enforcement strategies specifically targeting these neighborhoods, and we have um, sentencing, you know, uh, sentencing strategies put in place that are targeting, you know, poor people. You know, for instance, your crack is significantly cheaper than powder cocaine. Um, so we saw a lot of poor people coming into the system. And poverty also plays a part. So if you can't afford bail, you're stuck in jail until your trial date comes or if you plead, until you plead guilty. And so people can be stuck in jail for a significant period of time. And we know from the research that if you come in in your pretty orange jumpsuit, you know, you're going to get a longer sentence than somebody who had the opportunity to be bailed out was working and doing what they needed to do and came in. Um, and like I mentioned earlier, 80% of criminal defendants require a public defender. Um, and there's all the, the issues that come along with that. And so you take all of this together and what we now have is over 2 million people incarcerated where about two thirds of them are people of color. Right. And so for all of all of these things that you mentioned now, if, if people do uh, say, uh, what you might call an apples to apples comparison, if you look at, say, people who were you know, committed the same crime and were convicted of committing pretty much the same crime, do we even in that instance see any kind of significant disparities in sentences if they're if they're black or white? Well, what we do see in in regards to that is that um, you know people are more likely to plea. So if you can't you know if you can't afford an attorney, you're much more likely to plea um, and feel forced to be you know put into a plea. And so we see people coming out with longer sentences that way for sure. Um, another thing that comes into play is you know uh, health insurance. And that gets tied up in the poverty as well. So, for instance, if I have a drug um, addiction and I come into the courtroom and I say, you know, I have a drug addiction, I know that, and there's a treatment bed waiting for me at XYZ Rehabilitation Clinic and my health insurance is going to pay for it, then what ends up happening is the judge lets that person go into the treatment center because they know that there's not real treatment that they're going to be able to access while they're incarcerated. And so all of those things really come into play as well. Now. One of the absolutely most contentious aspects of an already contentious American criminal justice system is capital punishment, of course. And uh, I did a little research. Uh, more than two-thirds of the world's countries have abolished the death penalty. And and I took a look at the numbers of executions in recent years, and I, I was sort of dismayed to find the United States, well, not only right around the top, but in some 
you know, very questionable company. I mean, you know, uh, China, Iran, Pakistan, North Korea, right? We're, we're right up there, you know? Um, and so I'm wondering, why do you think we're so unlike essentially almost every other rich, developed liberal democracy, you know, uh, the UK, Canada, Western European countries in, in this respect? I think that's a really interesting question. Um, just from what I see, I, I think it's something, you know, because when you look at Americans, they tend to be divided, you know, half or four, half are, are against the death penalty. And I think a lot of it, when I when I listen to people talk about why they're for it, and when I, you know, bring this up in class with students, retribution really seems to be the key factor. Um, it's that idea that, you know, if I were ever in the situation where, you know, my sister was, was murdered, I would want the possibility of having that person executed, that, that idea of an eye for an eye. But I think that's a very American sort of value in that sense, um, in comparison to other, you know, Western European countries in, in Canada, for instance. Um, when uh, a colleague and I went to Scotland a couple of years ago and did a student exchange, and as part of that, I spoke at the university in, in Scotland, in Edinburgh, and uh, there were Scottish students and our, our students were in the room as well. And I was giving a presentation on the, you know, what's going on with the death penalty in the United States and the Scottish students were just falling out of their seats. They just couldn't even believe it. It just didn't make any sense to them whatsoever. And then it was one of the greatest parts about the conversation was the American students chimed in and we had half of them saying, hey, I'm for the death penalty and half of them saying, hey, I'm against it. And it was a really great example to, you know, show back to the Scotland students, hey, this is kind of what Americans in general really think about it. And it was just really they just could not grasp the, the the concept at all. It just didn't make any sense to the, the Scottish students. So, so, so we're kind of more in the U.S. more Old Testament on it, and, and, and I guess a lot of other places are a lot more New Testament on it to kind of make a biblical reference there. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, obviously, if someone's rationale is sort of eye for an eye retribution, that's not something that you can look at data to sort of make a counter argument for, but. I know there are other people who believe that the existence of the death penalty can serve as a deterrent. And, and that, I would guess, is something that we presumably can evaluate with data. And so I'm wondering, uh, do we know if the death penalty is an effective crime deterrent? Yeah, it's actually not. Um, there are three parts to the deterrence theory that you have to have in place, and all three parts have to be there in order for it to be an effective deterrent. So you have to have the punishment has to be swift. Do you want the punishment to follow as closely as possible to the crime? Um, in On average in the United States, people on death row are there for 10 years. So it's definitely not swift. And then you have states like California where people often die on death row um, rather than being executed. Um, so it's definitely not swift. The other part of the deterrence theory is certainty, and that means that you have to be certain that you will receive the punishment. And that doesn't play out either because, you know, not every state has the death penalty. So you could commit the crime in West Virginia, for instance, where they don't have the death penalty and commit the same crime in Kentucky where they do have the death penalty and receive it. Um, also, class comes into play again there. Can you hire a private attorney? Um, you know, even if you, you know, it's clear that you committed the crime. If you have a private attorney, they can create reasonable doubt for you. They can present mitigating circumstances to get you, you know, the death penalty off of the table. Um, so it's definitely not certain that you'll receive the punishment, even if you're in a state that has it. Um, the third part of deterrence is severity, and it definitely meets that. So you want the punishment to be severe enough that it outweighs any benefit that anybody could ever receive from it. 
and the death penalty definitely does that, you know, that you're taking the person's life, but you don't have all three parts of it. And so it's not something that happens immediately after the crime, and it's not something that we can be certain that we're going to actually receive. And those have to be in place in order for mm-hmm. it to be an effective deterrent. So it was done in sort of an Old West kind of manner, at least in, you know, those old movies and so forth, where someone commits the crime and it seems like a week later there's the trial, and then that day they go out and they hang them or something. That might meet those standards for deterrence, but what we do, and, and the reason I would guess for so many of the delays, obviously, are procedural things to make sure we don't screw up because it's not a it's not a penalty you can rescind. Uh, that sort of is a fatal flaw then. Yeah, absolutely. And and it does happen. We do have cases where later we know the person was innocent, yeah. but they had been executed for yeah. sure. Now, now, what do we know about racial disparities in the administration of the death penalty? Well, what's interesting about that is more whites are executed than blacks. Um, 56% of those who are executed are white, 42% are African-American. But you have to step back and look at what is the percentage of African-Americans in the, the general population, right? So it's significantly, you know, we're seeing significantly more executed than we have within a general population. So we have that. But we also know from the Baldus study that the race of the um, the victim matters. So, for instance, it doesn't matter what the race of the offender is. If my victim is white, I'm three times more likely to receive the death penalty. So race matters there as well. But it also comes into play with wrongful conviction. So, for instance, if you look at who's wrongfully convicted, 52% of those who are wrongfully convicted are African-American in comparison to 39% of whites and 8% of Latinos. And this, again, gets back to, you know, indigent defense and, you know, that sort of thing as well, because most who are, you know, have the uh, death penalty eligible, um, they have a public defender. So it gets back to that as well. So it's not necessarily, I mean, some people will say, well, this is you know, clear evidence of racism. Other people would say, well, maybe so, but it might be clear evidence of the fact that the that defense counsel for a lot of poor minority folks, and those are overlapping categories in many cases, just is overburdened and overworked and just simply can't do the job as effectively as for that that 20% that you mentioned before. Right. It's a, it's a multi-layer problem. You really can't look at it, one of these issues without looking at all of right. them. Right. You know, it, it seems to me, that at least in recent years, it's become a lot harder for states to execute prisoners. I mean, I see stories all the time now about either drugs aren't available or drug combinations don't work the way they should. And and I think a lot of people uh, see this and they, they wonder why it's an issue in the first place, given that, you know, putting someone to death seems like it should be pretty straightforward. I mean, hanging, uh, firing squads, these things are, I would guess, reasonably foolproof, yet we seem to have almost entirely abandoned these methods. So I was wondering if you could talk about what's going on with that. Mm-hmm, absolutely. It's The death penalty, I think the one of the most interesting things to me about the death penalty is that we're constantly trying to find more humane ways to use it. Um, so that's kind of why we've gotten away, you know, firing squad, the, the image of that, I think, is inhumane, although I think it's probably the most effective way you could do it. Um, and hanging, if you're not good at math and don't get all that right, can be a very nasty way to go. And so it's, you know, went from hanging to electrocutions, and there's all these issues with electrocutions and just being a nasty process. And then we tried gas chambers for a while, and that didn't work, and we ended up with lethal injection. Um, and then we used that for years. And, and lethal injection has, you know, there's three different um, 
processes that occur. So you have the first uh, drug that goes in and anesthetizes the person, then you have a drug that goes in and stops the heart, and you have a drug that goes in and, and suffocates the person. Um, and so we used that for, for many, many years. And then what ended up happening was, um, gosh, it's been a few years now, the American Medical Association said that doctors and nurses could no longer participate in executions because it went against their Hippocratic Oath. And that created a scenario where now you have uh, corrections officers who are injecting drugs into somebody through an IV. And if you've ever had an IV put in, you know that some people are really good at it and some people are not, and that's people who are medically trained. Um, and so there's been instances of botched executions with the drugs not going into the blood, but actually going into the body and the, it taking hours for the person to die. And then more recently, just a few years ago, the European Union um, outlawed the drug that we were using to anesthetize the person. They said that they didn't want it being used um, in executions getting back to their, you know, strong stance against them. And so that left the United States in kind of a situation where they they thought they honestly, most states thought they could wait it out. So, for instance, um, Kentucky actually gave Ohio some of their drugs, thinking that, you know, when we could get the drugs again, Ohio would just pay them back. Um, but we're still having trouble accessing the drugs. You still can't get a hold of them. Um, the the uh, Prisons don't really know how to handle this situation, so we've gotten to a situation where we're actually testing drugs on inmates. So, for instance, um, midazolam is one of the drugs that's being used. Um, that's the drug that's used to anesthetize people when they're going in to have like an endoscopy or something like that, so it's considered twilight sleep. So for some people, that puts them out, and for some people, it does not. And so we've had instances where the person is trying to, you know, sit up and talk during the, the the, uh, the, the other drugs being administered to kill them. Um, then there was, uh, in Ohio, they had used uh, the drug that we used to um, put down a horse. So, you know, if you had your, if your animal's about to die and you take them to the vet, the drug that they would use for that, they were actually using. And again, they ran into trouble because we don't really know how people are going to react to that in these types of situations. And they had a situation where a guy was sputtering and talking for about 20 minutes during this. And so they actually stopped some of their executions for a while. But we're starting to see states start to talk about bringing them back. Um, Ohio and Kentucky are examples of that. Now, it, so if I understand this correctly, bizarrely, because we want executions to appear more humane and less barbaric. We've actually made things far worse and far more difficult, uh, both for, I guess, the corrections officials and, you know, for the, for the, the, the prisoners who, who have suffered a lot more when something, you know, kind of tried and true, like a firing squad, which certainly looks awful, would, would almost certainly be, uh, you know, quick and instant and, and largely painless, yet we go through all this because we don't like the way these older methods look. Exactly. It's a weird, it is, it really is. It's, it's one of the most interesting things I think about the death penalty is yeah. the, the method of execution. Now, now in a, in a perfect world, or <laughs> at least a more perfect world than, than ours, people who commit crimes, you know, they go to prison, they, they learn their lesson. And then when they're released, they become law abiding and, you know, productive members of society. I think that's, that's the goal for, I think for most folks, uh, how far are we from that perfect world in, in our U.S. correction system? 
Oh, we're really far away yeah. from that. Yeah, I mean, I we're so. nowhere near it. It's, you know, once we started incarcerating all these low-level offenders with the war on drugs what we and putting them in for longer periods of time, we had to shorten the sentences for violent offenders in order to make room for them. And then eventually there were so many that came in, they overtook the system. There's just, you know, the places where we would have had treatment programs occurring now are, are housing inmates. Um, we just don't have the space. And, uh, you know, the money's just not there for treatment either because you have to be Primarily, your you know your first concern has to be security and safety um, when you're when you're housing people in this way. So we just don't have the money for treatment programs. And so, for instance, you know I was working with a treatment program in a medium security women's prison, and there were 50 women in the the program. It was for substance abuse, and there were 150 women on the waiting list. And as one would graduate and leave, one would come in. And it was that way the entire two years I worked with the program. So there's a real need for treatment, and we do the best we can, but there's just very little of it that's actually occurring within the system. And so, you know, between that and the barriers we set up when people are released, you really have no shot. You know, when you come out, you you have to write on every application that you're now a felony offender, um, you know, and you you can't get access to certain benefits. So, for example, if you're a drug offender in many states, you can't get access to, you know, housing or welfare and all these other different things, um, even though we're talking about the poorest of the poor of our society. So between the lack of treatment within the system and the lack of support once people are released, it's not surprising at all that, you know, over half of them are going to come yeah. back within three years. So so then I guess you could, based on that, you could make an uh, an argument, not a sort of liberal lefty sort of argument, but you could make a conservative uh, economic, you know, green eye shade argument that it would make more sense for us to spend more money on people who are incarcerated so that it would lower the recidivism rate. We'd actually save money and be bringing more productive, useful workers into society, right? I mean, is that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And and I would even take it further than that and saying that, you know, we've been incarcerating these low-level offenders for the last, you know, 30 years, but how effective really is that? You know, these are people that prior to this we would have worked with in the community, and there's a lot of different community corrections programs that we can still do that with that are significantly cheaper. Um, and, you know, and so it costs about $25,000 a year to put somebody in prison, and that's just housing and securing them. That's not taking into consideration medical or treatment or anything like that. You know, in comparison to like a drug court program, for instance, that costs about $5,000 a year, the person remains in the community. Part of the goal is to get them into treatment as well as to get a job. So they're actually paying taxes. And then they're also taking care of their kids and, you know, things like that. So the social welfare system or the grandparents or whomever, you know, is, is having to do that doesn't have that placed on them. And the person's being given the support and the resources to be able to take on all those challenges. Yeah. I wonder if that ties into that, you know, retribution issue we were talking about earlier, where people have this desire for someone to, you know, uh, go to jail and have it be tough, you know, break rocks or whatever, and that's what they deserve. Yet it's sort of a, a short-term emotional response that in the long term is actually far more destructive to both the individual and society. Oh, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I think there's also a racial undertone to it as well in that, you know, with the the crack epidemic, that's when these were like, you know, we're going to lock them up, throw them away. And now we're seeing the heroin epidemic and the people who are engaged in the heroin epidemic look very different. They tend to be white. And so we're seeing a very different response to this. You know, we, we need treatment. We need opioid treatment and, and all those different things. So it's a it's a very different response. So I think there's a lot of that going on as well. Yeah. You know, I, I have one final 
question for you. The listeners uh, know that I am uh, not not anywhere close to a fan of Attorney General Jeff Sessions. I I think he's probably a honorable guy who I disagree with almost entirely on every matter of criminal justice policy. It sort of seems to me that he's kind of taking us back to the 80s and the early 90s and a lot of his ideas and things. And so now obviously you know a lot more about this than I do. And so if you were an advisor to the attorney general, to Jeff Sessions, what would, let's say, your top three recommendations to him be? Um, Top three. So I think one of the running themes throughout this interview has been indigent defense. Um, And so addressing the issue of indigent defense. um, So, you know, people aren't forced to plead so that we don't have these wrongful convictions and, you know, people get the counsel that they deserve. I also think that we need to fund treatment and harm reduction policies. So, for instance, um, you know, if we had more treatment opportunities in the community, there wouldn't be as many people who ended up eventually getting into the criminal justice system. And so you could shift the money that we're spending on corrections um, towards law enforcement and allow them to target something very different. So having law law enforcement targeting those who are trafficking, um, those who are selling large amounts of drugs, and taking those low-level offenders and low-level dealers and getting them into treatment and going that avenue instead, Um, and, you know, educating the next generation about real education, you know, not like there when we were kids and went through that and we were given misinformation, but actually giving kids the real information and saying, this is what heroin does to you. You know, you don't want to engage in that to keep the next generation from engaging. Um, And then the third one would be um, to help the police in the community bridge these gaps. You know, over the last 30 years with the war on drugs, we've really broken down police and, and community relationships between these stop and frisk policies and you know, stopping people on cars and you know the militarization of the police and all these things have led to a situation where the police don't trust the community and the community don't trust the police. There's a real mutual fear that's occurring there in, the, in many communities right now. And so we need to address that and really break that down and talk about the root of the problem. How did we get there and have that honest conversation and then listen to the community about what they want and need to have, you know, to happen in their, in their community to make it a safer place and then have the police and the community work together to achieve right. that. You know, it seems like a, a number of those things you mentioned, I felt like at least in the last few years before 2017, there seemed to be at least a few signs of progress. I was hearing noises about bipartisan work on uh, sentencing reform and, and, you know, increases in drug courts and, and, and a bunch of other things that seemed uh, a realization that this war on drugs was uh, a counterproductive and destructive thing and we needed a new approach. But my sense of things with the current administration is that 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 focus has shifted back to what we already have. In fact, in some cases, doubling down on that. I mean, is that is that your sense? Oh yes, absolutely. I you know I think after the the banking crisis of two thousand and eight, we saw a real uh, hey, we need to kind of look at criminal justice again. We're spending all this money and we don't have money anymore, and that really kicked off the conversation of what can we start doing differently. And you know, over the last ten years, there was a lot of movement in that direction. A lot of talk about let's really fund community policing and really, you know, do some real stuff with that. And but yeah, now we've really turned a corner and have gone the complete opposite direction. You know, with many of the policies that um, Attorney General Jeff Sessions puts forward, for instance, are really taking us back right to 1986 when we were at the height of the you know the moral panic with the crack cocaine epidemic. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, are, are, are you hopeful, I guess? Uh, do, do you think, do you see any reason to be hopeful? Hoping you could end this on a, on a positive note here. <laughs> yeah, no, I think there are. I think at the state, at, at the local level in particular, I think there's a lot of people trying to figure out how to do things with limited resources. Um, at the state level, I think people are recognizing that we just don't have the resources. You know, we're, we're struggling with, you know, infrastructure and education and things like that. So how can we adjust things to move it from criminal justice to this? So whether it's a, you know, if, you know, if you're coming from a moral standpoint or you're coming from a financial standpoint, I think there is the movement. I think we've hit a bump in the road, but I think once the reality of budget constraints and those sorts of things really come back into place, I think we're going to see movement towards this again oh. on a larger scale. All right. Well, well, with that positive note, we'll, we'll, <laughs> uh, we'll close. Uh, Dr. Danielle McDonald, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Michael. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Support from listeners just like you is what keeps the show going, and we truly do appreciate it. If you're interested in joining our great group of Politics Guys supporters, you can go to politicsguys.com and click on the Patreon or PayPal links you'll see there. And if you want to support the show without spending anything, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, or whatever other podcast app you use. Share this episode with your friends and followers, and pass along our new show posts and tweets on Facebook and Twitter. Leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes also helps. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or just a random thought you want to share with us, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page, where you can message us and where we post things throughout the week, is facebook.com slash page. We're also on Twitter, at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorf, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.